0: As you probably discerned, we're going to be taking a break from Joshua this week, and that is because Easter is approaching. And listen, people, we own Easter. Easter is owned by the people of Jesus, because Easter is not about a fat bunny, and it's not about colored eggs. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. And we as a church of Jesus Christ need to own that fact, and what we're calling you to do this Easter is invite people into that reality. INVITE THEM TO MEET THE RISEN LORD. NOTICE THE PHRASEOLOGY. INVITE THEM TO MEET THE RISEN LORD. JESUS CHRIST IS RISEN FROM THE DEAD. THAT IS A CORE tenet OF THE HISTORICAL CHRISTIAN FAITH. NOW, WE NEED TO BE SURE ABOUT THAT. IF YOU'RE NOT ABSOLUTELY SURE THAT JESUS CHRIST ROSE FROM THE DEAD, IT'S SILLY FOR YOU TO INVITE PEOPLE TO EASTER. IT'S ALL ABOUT CELEBRATING AND REALIZING AND DISCERNING AND RESPONDING TO THE FACT THAT HE ROSE FROM THE DEAD. AND SO YOU NEED TO BE ABLE TO DO THAT WITH CONFIDENCE. So today, we're going to build your faith a little bit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's necessary, or just give you some tools as you witness about Jesus Christ to defend the historicity of the resurrection. Every time in my personal evangelism, the resurrection always comes up. And I'm the kind of guy, you know me, I don't beat around the bush. I go right for the juggler vein. So I go right to the resurrection. I start sharing Jesus and somebody says, well, but, and I say, but he rose from the dead. And then that, that's the crux of the issue right there. Because if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then all of his claims and everything about Christianity in the Bible is true. If he didn't, then none of it is. And so we need to be absolutely sure about that this Easter as we invite people into that resurrection. And, and, and we need to have some tools to share about the historicity and the validity of Jesus's physical resurrection from the dead. It is no coinkydink dink that uh, the Jesus tomb film came out a few weeks before Easter. That is not a coincidence. That is by design of those who are against the reality of Jesus Christ. And, And we had a teaching on that Sunday night just a few weeks ago. If you weren't here for that, you need to be educated. We refuted that film solidly. And so if you weren't here, go to the website, look up that teaching and be educated on that. This morning as we talk about the historicity and the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to realize I've done a few teachings at this church on that topic. Today will be a little bit different, um, and the other ones were different from each other. So go to our website, go to the messages page, search for resurrection, and you'll get a few different messages uh, defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you listen to those between now and Easter, you'll be very equipped to share this truth also want to recommend to you a couple books on the topic for those of you that want to dive in deep, because all we could do in a one-hour sermon is just really scratch the surface. But if you want to dive in deep, and if you're a student of the Word, there's many books written on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I will just recommend two. The first one is called The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDowell. Absolutely excellent, wonderful, my highest, highest recommended book on the subject. Uh, he had training in law as a lawyer, and what he does is he puts the resurrection of Jesus Christ on trial in this book, only accepts evidence that would have been permissible in a court of law, and weighs it out as a court of law would, and shows overwhelmingly that uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is believable, in fact, the single most believable event in antiquity. AND THIS BOOK DEMONSTRATES THAT VERY WONDERFULLY. NOW, IT'S OUT OF PRINT, BUT DON'T WORRY ABOUT THAT. YOU CAN GET ANY OUT OF PRINT BOOK IF YOU GO TO ABEBOOKS.COM. THEY HAVE DATABASES OF EVERY USED BOOKSTORE IN THE WORLD, PRACTICALLY, EVERY SIGNIFICANT ONE, AND YOU CAN SEARCH ALL THOSE AND YOU'LL FIND COPIES OF THAT TO PURCHASE AND THEY'LL SHIP IT RIGHT TO YOUR DOOR. SECOND BOOK THAT'S MORE READILY AVAILABLE IS SIMPLY CALLED RESURRECTION BY HANK Hanegraaff. VERY HELPFUL IN DEFENDING THE RESURRECTION OF JESUS CHRIST AND THE RESURRECTION OF BELIEVERS. Go to equip.org, Hank's website, and this is available there. So I want to recommend those things to you for those of you that want to dive in deeper. And now we'll just scratch the surface a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our chance to learn together this morning from your word, from history, from truth. Jesus, you are truth. And we believe that you conquered sin and death and the devil when you rose from the dead. We believe it, Lord. We ask if there be any hint of doubt in our hearts that the clear teaching of your word would, would just remove that doubt this morning. The Holy Spirit, you would come and instruct us that you would convince us of sin and righteousness and judgment and truth. And so, Lord, come and teach us. And then, Lord, make us doers with what we know. Make us doers of the word. Make us bold with the gospel. Make us bold sharing the truth of the risen Lord. We ask that you would accomplish this in our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. First two verses I want to share with you are on the PowerPoint, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it reads like this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, now there are three things in this passage that is dictated to the Christian, three things that we must do, number one, we are told to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, to sanctify means to set apart, we're to sanctify him as Lord, NOT MERELY AS SAVIOR, NOT JUST AS FRIEND, NOT AS PROBLEM SOLVER, NOT AS SECURITY BLANKET, AS LORD. WE ARE TO SET HIM APART IN OUR HEARTS AS LORD. SECONDLY, WE ARE TO KEEP A GOOD CONSCIENCE. THAT IS TO SAY THAT CHRISTIANS ARE TO KEEP THEIR BEHAVIOR GOOD IN THE WORLD BECAUSE MANY WOULD SEEK TO CAST uh, ASPERSION ON THE VALIDITY OF CHRISTIANITY BY LOOKING AT THE BEHAVIOR OF CHRISTIANS. AND SO WE'RE CALLED TO KEEP A GOOD CONSCIENCE AND A TIGHT WALK. AND THEN NUMBER THREE, AND FOR OUR PURPOSES THIS MORNING, we are told in verse 15 that we are to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us. That word translated defense in the English is a Greek word, apologia. It's where we get our word apologetic. It means very simply to give an answer, a plea, or a defense, such as in a court of law. To give an answer, a plea, a defense. We get our word in Christianity, apologetics from that, which means a reasonable defense of the faith. There are those who concentrate on apologetics. This is an apologetic message, a defense of the faith. Apologetics does not mean we're giving apologies. Oh, I'm sorry, I believe in Christianity. That's not what it means. It comes from the Greek word, which means to give a reason, an answer, a defense. So we're told here, that we're to always be ready to defend the reason for the hope that is in us as those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen? Second two verses I want to share with you are Jude 3 and 4, just one chapter in the book of Jude tucked in there before the book of Revelation. And we have verses 3 and 4 here. It says, Beloved, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I want you to notice the potency of that statement. The one who penned the book of Jude was going to write about uh, our common things in salvation. But the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, led him to write these words, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, that is what was on the heart of God for that epistle, that we would be stirred up to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. The reason is given to us at the end of the passage. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, scripture tells us here that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. Earnestly means fervently, with passion, with tenacity. To contend means to fight to win to fight for a cause, but to fight to win. So we are to fight for the cause of Christianity with tenacity, with earnestness, with passion. And so it becomes very clear from the New Testament that every Christian is responsible for being willing and able to defend the faith, or at least why you yourself believe, and to earnestly fight for or contend for the faith. That is a privilege, the honor, the responsibility of every Christian. That is not to be left in the hand of clergy. That is not for pastors only or professional apologists. Every Christian is called in Scripture to be able to give a defense for why you believe what you believe and to contend for it, to fight for it with tenacity, with earnestness. Now, when it comes to apologetics, the defense of the faith, the paramount issue is The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the single most important issue doctrine to defend with regards to the faith. The rest of Christianity stands or falls with the validity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there are four reasons why this is the most important issue and why you need to be educated on this today. The first reason comes from Romans chapter 1 verse 4 where we read, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So there we see, number one, the very identity of Jesus is determined by his resurrection from the dead. Very important. That means that if he rose from the dead bodily, then Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. The only unique Savior of the world, the Son of God, God in the flesh. If he did not rise from the dead, then he is not those things. The very identity of Jesus Christ is wrapped up in the fact of the resurrection. Therefore, it is very important that we know and defend and hold to it. The second reason is given to us in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15, which your Bible is open to. Let's start reading in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul, under the authorship of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, meaning you never really put the weight of your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Number three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what the Lord told Paul the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, so the second reason why the defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important, is because Jesus' resurrection from the dead, is a core component of the gospel, If you remove that from the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. Call it whatever you want, some fancy religious idea, but it is not the gospel. The gospel includes those components. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. You take away any portion thereof, you don't have the gospel. You take away the sin part, there's no gospel. And yet much of the church today is doing that very thing. They want to soft-pedal it, they don't want to offend, and so they don't say sin or that you're a sinner. Guess what? You are and you do. So do I. Sin is the bad news. The gospel is the good news. Literally in Greek, gospel means good news. Ain't no good news without the bad news. You got to tell the people the bad news, you're going to give them the good news. You're going to give them medicine you better convince them that they're sick first and so we tell people that they're sinners in need of a savior and that jesus christ died for our sins was buried and then rose on the third day if you neglect that part of the gospel you're not giving the gospel because it is through the resurrection that sin and death and the devil were conquered amen and so because it determines the very identity of jesus christ and is a core component of the gospel we cannot compromise on his bodily resurrection second or thirdly excuse me WE SEE THAT JESUS' RESURRECTION FROM THE DEAD PROVES THE VALIDITY OF OUR FAITH. NOW WE'RE GOING TO START READING IN VERSE 12 OF 1 CORINTHIANS 15. LET ME GIVE YOU A LITTLE BACKGROUND FIRST SO YOU UNDERSTAND WHAT Paul's SPEAKING ABOUT. HE'S TALKING HERE ABOUT THE BELIEVER'S RESURRECTION FROM THE DEAD. IT IS A CORE COMPONENT OF THE HISTORIC CHRISTIAN FAITH THAT THERE IS A BODILY RESURRECTION FOR EVERY BELIEVER IN JESUS CHRIST. THE TOTALITY OF WHO WE ARE HAS BEEN REDEEMED. And there will be a time where we receive a glorified body. It happens at the rapture of the church. For Christians who have already died at that moment, their body is raised imperishable, and then they receive their glorified body. For those of us who are alive and remain, we shall be transformed, translated in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trump of God's shout of Michael the archangel. Amen. Amen. And so there is a bodily resurrection for you and I, that is a core tenet of the historical Christian faith, and Paul is defending that here in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are some Christians who are saying, well, we die, but we don't rise from the dead bodily. The Jewish Sadducees also believe that. You remember from the Gospels, we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. The Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. And then there were also Christians who didn't believe in it. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You see, these two things are commingled, the resurrection of the believer and the resurrection of Christ. Verse 14, potent for us. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain or worthless. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then the preaching and our faith is worthless. It has no value. Now, what Paul is speaking of here is a bodily resurrection from the dead. Any other sort of resurrection from the dead is foreign to the Bible. Whenever throughout biblical history, in the Old Testament, in the New, and in Judaism, and in Christianity, when a resurrection is spoken of, it is always a physical resurrection. There's no such thing as a spiritual resurrection. It is always a context of a physical resurrection, always in the Bible. Any other idea, a spiritual resurrection is foreign. So when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, the, the, the doctrine that we're defending is his bodily resurrection. Resurrection from the dead. And Paul says here if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, our faith is meaningless. It has no value. Now, the fourth point we see as we start reading in verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. But He was raised. Amen. And so we shall be verse 17 potent for us and if christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins you are still in your sins so the fourth reason why this doctrine is so important is that jesus's resurrection from the dead assures our being forgiven of our sins and receiving eternal life there is no forgiveness of sins without his bodily resurrection from the dead the death on the cross is meaningless It's just another death if He did not rise from the dead. Remember, He's identified as the Son of God and the Lamb of God and the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath and judgment and standard of God by the fact that He rose from the dead. The resurrection is the stamp of approval on the crucifixion. And so for those four reasons, this is the singularly most important issue in Christianity when it comes to apologetics. The New Testament itself places the balance of the validity of our faith on the historical validity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that we hope in as Christians hinges on the question of whether or not He rose from the dead bodily. So clearly Christianity and, resurrection and the resurrection stand or fall together. Now, the resurrection is a singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other world religions. You can take a class on comparative world religions, but nothing compares to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Compare my eye. Jesus Christ and his resurrection sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world and all the other religious figures. Through the resurrection, Christ demonstrates that he does not stand in a line of peers with Moses, Abraham, Buddha, Confucius, or Muhammad, or anyone else. Whatever merits they may have or not have, Jesus is not one of their peers. He is the only one who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection. Therefore, his words and his words alone have validity beyond anyone else in history and beyond any other religious claims. He is utterly unique. He said in John 14:6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. And he said very potently in John 10, 18, No man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I got the power to take it up again. And so he did. Jesus rose from the dead. In spite of these facts, there are some horrific statistics that reflect upon the current state of Christianity. Here's a quote from Newsweek in an article from 1996. It says, A SURVEY CONDUCTED BY THE BARNA RESEARCH GROUP FINDS THAT 30% OF BORN-AGAIN CHRISTIANS DO NOT BELIEVE THAT JESUS CAME BACK TO PHYSICAL LIFE AFTER HE WAS CRUCIFIED. 30% OF SO-CALLED BORN-AGAIN CHRISTIANS SAID THEY DO NOT BELIEVE IN THE PHYSICAL RESURRECTION OF JESUS CHRIST. GUESS WHAT? IF THEY DON'T BELIEVE IN THAT, THEN THEY'RE NOT BORN AGAIN. BECAUSE WITHOUT THAT, OUR FAITH IS WORTHLESS. YOU CAN HAVE A RELIGION, YOU CAN HAVE A GLEE CLUB, WHATEVER YOU WANT. But without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't call yourself a Christian. It is not Christianity. This is even more disturbing. In a survey of 7,441 Protestant pastors, 51% of Methodists, 35% of Presbyterian, 33% of Baptists, and 30% of Episcopalian pastors did not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a problem in Christianity. There's a problem in Christianity. That's what happens when you begin to compromise and let go of the inerrancy, infallibility, and absolute authority of the Word of God. You begin to compromise on that and put yourself in place of judge. Well, I believe this from the Bible, but not that. I'll lay hold of this, but not that. Well, I think Jesus said this, but not that. I don't really think it means this here. You put yourself in the place of judge, I'll tell you the first place that you'll start to compromise is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan will see to it. That's the first place that he will attack, and you let doubt take hold in your heart, and that's exactly where he'll go, and Christianity reflects that. You see, but Jesus himself told of both his physical death and his physical resurrection before those events were ever to transpire. He predicted them. Therefore, if they did not happen, he's a liar and a deceiver. If they did happen, then he is the Lord God Almighty, the only unique Savior of the world. And what an able defense of the resurrection does is this. It removes the question, is Christianity valid? It removes that question from the realm of philosophy and puts it in the realm of history. Is Christianity valid? It is not a philosophical debate. It is not a contest of ideas. Our faith is based on a historical figure who died a literal physical death and rose again literally and physically from the dead. It's not a matter of philosophy or ideology. It's a matter of history. And so an able defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ removes the debate from the realm of philosophy, which is endless, and brings it into the realm of history. And what we find is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only actual and historical, but it is evidential and defensible. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 12 brief facts, and you need to keep these facts in mind. And then we're going to look at various theories that have been suggested over the last 2,000 years to explain the claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these 12 facts that I'm going to give you right now that you've got to keep in mind These are basically undisputed facts. These are the facts that nobody really argues about. These are just the basics of what transpired around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so any theory that tries to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the lack thereof has got to fit this set of evidences, these 12 facts. And if a theory doesn't fit those facts, if it contradicts any number of those facts, then that theory can't possibly be true. Okay, so keep that in mind as we look at those various theories, but here are the facts. Facts number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. We know that, it's historical. Fact number two, he was buried. Fact number three, Jesus' death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing that his life had ended. Everybody knows that. Fact number four, the tomb was discovered to be empty just a few days later talk about that. Fact number five, the disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Lord. Fact number six, the disciples were transformed from doubters, men who were afraid to identify themselves as even being with Jesus, to then boldly proclaiming his death and resurrection. That's a historical fact you got to deal with. Number seven, The message of the resurrection was at the center of the preaching in the early church. What was the message of the early church? Repent because Jesus is the risen Messiah. That was the center of preaching the risen Lord. Number eight, soon after Jesus' death, this message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where he had been buried. Therefore, it was easily observable whether or not he rose from the dead. Fact number nine, as a result of this preaching, the church was born and grew. IF THE EARLY CHURCH PREACHED A RISEN LORD, AND HE WASN'T RISEN, THEN WHY WAS THERE AN EARLY CHURCH? BECAUSE ANY JEW IN JERUSALEM COULD HAVE WALKED OVER TO THE GRAVE AND walled AWAY THE STONE AND SAW HIS BODY THERE IF IT WAS THERE. YOU NEED TO THINK ABOUT THAT. YOU NEED TO DEAL WITH THAT FACT. FACT NUMBER 10 IS VERY STRONG. SUNDAY BECAME THE PRIMARY DAY OF WORSHIP. YOU GENTILES DON'T UNDERSTAND HOW PROFOUND THAT IS. FOR ALL OF JEWISH HISTORY, THEY HAD WORSHIPPED ON THE SABBATH SATURDAY. And then the early church, which was all Jews, no Gentiles. The early church was all Jews. They began to worship on Sunday. Not only that, but they stopped sacrificing in the temple. What event was so enormous that it changed all of Jewish history and the entirety of their life of worship? In fact, number 11, James, who was a physical brother of Jesus, and who was a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. James was one of those who were present in Nazareth after Jesus taught in the synagogue and and began to reveal his mission from Isaiah 61. James is one of those who marched him up to a high cliff and sought to throw him off When we go to Israel, and there's a hundred of you going to Israel with us, when we go to Israel in September, we will go to Nazareth, and then we will go to the high cliff outside of Nazareth where they took Jesus and threw them off. It's a cliff overlooking the Valley of Armageddon. James was there that day. How do we account for the fact that this man who grew up with Jesus, who was a skeptic, suddenly turned, became a believer, and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem? And number 10, the Apostle Paul, or number 12, excuse me, who was on his way to kill Christians... When he had an encounter with somebody who was risen that changed his life. Now, any theory that is given to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ must take into account all these facts and must be consistent with these basic historical facts. I'll tell you in advance, the only one that is is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But some other people throughout time have taken some stabs at this. So here are some alternative theories that suggest that Christ's tomb remained occupied. In other words, these ones say that there was not an actual empty tomb, okay? Idea number one that's been given. They say Jesus was buried in an unknown tomb and never rose from the dead. Buried in an unknown tomb and never rose from the dead. Well, that contradicts point number four, that the tomb was discovered to be empty a few days later. Nobody thought they had an unknown tomb, by THE WAY, THERE IS AN ANGEL IN IT, IT was an UNKNOWN BY ANY MEANS, AND THAT CONTRADICTS NUMBER 12, THE FACT OF uh, PAUL BEING CONVERTED THROUGH A RISEN LORD, NUMBER 2, THE DISCIPLES WENT TO THE WRONG TOMB, JESUS NEVER ROSE, MANY PEOPLE BELIEVE THIS, OH, LOOK, THE DISCIPLES, THEY MADE A MISTAKE, THEY WERE VERY EXCITED, AND THEY RAN TO THE WRONG TOMB, JESUS NEVER ACTUALLY ROSE FROM THE DEAD, BUT EVIDENCE NUMBER 5 SAYS THAT THE DISCIPLES HAD EXPERIENCES WHICH THEY BELIEVE WERE A LITERAL APPEARANCE OF THE RISEN CHRIST, all the way through down to number 12. The message of the risen Christ was what was preached. The church was based on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, says that after his resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the 12. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, his earthly brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul says. So over 518 witnesses claimed to see the risen Lord. And yet some people would say, well, they just, they went to uh, just a wrong tomb. Wait a minute. Here's a quote from Joshua McDowell's book, The Resurrection Factor, about the wrong tomb theory. To believe the wrong tomb theory, one would have to believe that the whole world went to the wrong tomb. One would have to say that not only the women went to the wrong tomb, but that Peter and John ran to the wrong tomb, and the Jews then also went to the wrong tomb, followed by the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities. You would have to then say that the guard returned to the wrong tomb that he had previously been guarding, and that Joseph of Arimathea, the owner of the tomb, also went to the wrong tomb. And finally, you would have to say that the angel appeared at the wrong tomb. Oh, whoops! It would take a lot of faith and blind faith of that to believe something so absurd. It just doesn't line up with historical facts. It's just not believable that Jesus was buried in an unknown tomb or that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. The third theory that has been forwarded, and this is a very popular one, is that the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were merely hallucinations. That they were hallucinations. And yet we just read that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. That he appeared to Peter and then all the disciples. That he appeared to James. That he appeared to Paul. So that contradicts some of the clearly known facts of history. The problem with the hallucination theory is this. That these appearances of Christ were at different times... Different places. They happened over a period of time. He revealed himself to different people from different backgrounds with different psychological situations happening in their little heads. That he appeared before multiple people simultaneously. These appearances involved interactions, speaking with Jesus, Jesus speaking to them, touching Jesus. These appearances involved the consumption of food and then they stopped abruptly. Abruptly. None of those are characteristic of hallucinations. They don't happen to a group of 500 people at one time whose story would cooperate with one another perfectly. They don't happen to people of different backgrounds with different psychological things happening in their mind at different times. They don't happen with interaction. Nobody touches the wounds of a hallucination like Thomas touched the wounds who had doubted and said, my Lord and my God. And then they stopped abruptly. How do you explain that? Well, the ascension the bodily, literal ascension of Jesus Christ. So, the post-resurrection appearances being hallucinations contradicts some of the known facts. It doesn't hold water. Fourthly, people claim that Jesus' resurrection was merely a spiritual one. Now, there's a large segment of Christianity that believes this. Many of the seminaries in America have let go of a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, well, it, it was a spiritual, existential resurrection not a bodily one well, that contradicts number four that there was an empty tomb where's the body if just the spirit rose contradicts number five that the disciples had experiences where they saw him contradicts number 11 james seeing him paul seeing him and the 500 seeing him but, but even perhaps more powerfully is this the idea of a spiritual resurrection is totally foreign to the bible and the hebraic mindset it's absolutely me It was a Greek concept. It was never in the Bible. It was never in the Jewish heart or mind that there was a spiritual resurrection. That wouldn't have made any sense. Anytime a resurrection is spoken of, it's physical. The spirit is created to live forever by God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The spirit either goes to heaven or hell, but the body is resurrected. Whenever the Bible or Judaism, which is a context here, spoke of a resurrection, it was always bodily. And so... A spiritual resurrection is an invention of man, birthed in a doubtful heart. There's no facts to it, there's no history to it, there's no context to it whatsoever. And in fact, Jesus himself utterly destroys this notion in Luke chapter 24. Please go there. Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, we'll start reading verse 36. It's just after the road to Emmaus experience when Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and gives them that wonderful Old Testament Bible study. And they come back and report it to the disciples, and that's where we pick it up in Luke 24, verse 36. And while they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit there we have it, same situation that much of Christianity is saying today, or non-Christians, it's a spirit, it wasn't a bodily resurrection, that's what they thought initially, they thought that they were seeing a spirit, look how Jesus deals with that, and Jesus said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart, that's where that theory comes from, Verse 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus deals with that error in an instant. He does not let it fester. He doesn't let it go on. He refutes it with his own body. They thought that it was a spiritual resurrection. And he said, what are you, are you kidding me? Look at me, touch me. I'm flesh and bone by the definition of the Word of God. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Verse 40, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, And while they still could not believe it, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. I'm sorry, spirits don't eat. Jesus Christ destroys the notion that it was a spiritual resurrection. I do not understand how one calls himself a Christian or a Christian scholar or anything having to do with Christianity and denies the very words of Jesus who said, I am physically risen from the dead. I, I, I don't understand that. You see, when you let go of the inerrancy of the word of God, the infallibility of the word of God, the absolute authority of the word of God, you start believing silly things that are contrary to the word of God. And what those people effectually do is they put themselves in the place of judge. I don't care how wise they sound. I don't care how learned they are. They are not the judge of God's word. They put themselves in the place of judge. They say, well, I'll believe this, but not that. I see evidence for this, but I don't see it for that. Well, I can understand this, while so they hold of that, but I'm not too sure of that. They put themselves in the place of judge. And the moment you have man as judge over the word of God, you are on a slippery slope. Listen, if I'm wrong, I would still, if I'm wrong about the inerrancy and the infallibility and the absolute authority of the Word of God, I would still rather stand before Jesus Christ the judge on that day and say, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry. I believed every word. I had faith. I'm sorry, Lord. I believed every word. I'd rather stand in that place than is the one who's put himself in the place of judge and now stands before Jesus the judge and says, well, I didn't really believe Luke 24. I didn't think you said it. Why well, didn't really believe the Genesis account. Well, I didn't believe Revelation. Well, I had good reasons for not believing your word. I never want to be that person or with that person. I want to stand before the Lord, and even if I'm wrong, I will say, Lord, I'm sorry. I believed every word, but I'm not wrong. This next one, number five, is a doozy. They say, Jesus didn't resurrect at all, but he was impersonated by his long-lost twin brother. (laughs) This is not a joke. In 1995, a philosopher, Robert Gray Cavan, suggested this idea. He wrote about it. People believe it. This is published. In 1995, he said this. Jesus had a twin brother, and his name was Jerome. Where'd you get Jerome, Haram? <laughs> Haram? Yeshua and Jerome? I don't know, but that's what he says. Jesus had a twin brother. His name was Jerome. They were separated at birth in one of uh, Mary's uh, and switched with Mary's real baby. Okay, so what he said, this philosopher, he said Mary wasn't actually the mother of Jesus. She had a different baby, and this other lady had these twins, Yeshua and Haram but they got switched i guess the cave in bethlehem was such a crowded birth center that night it was such crowded in the birthing center there that you know the nurses and the doctors went oh no who's yeshua who's Jerome? who's this baby i don't know give this one to mary okay mary there you go and then she never actually had jesus at all but she raised this baby named jesus and Jerome, the long lost twin, this man said, never saw his twin again until the cross. He showed up at the cross and he saw the mirror image of himself there and he devised this idea. I will pretend to rise from the dead on the third day and because I look just like Jesus, I will claim to be him and I will carry on his mission and I'll fool all his disciples who walked, talked, ate, and slept and laughed with him for three years. That's stupid. I mean people believe this listen it seems absurd to us but the Bible says that when people have rejected the truth they will believe the lie and I find it almost unfathomable what people will believe once they've rejected the truth there seems to be no end to the lies that they will believe once they have rejected the truth and we are living in a day and age where people don't want to deal with the truth In whatever sphere you're talking about people do not want to know with and deal with the truth Number six, they say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is merely a legend. That contradicts facts 1 through 12. (laughs) Listen, it's not possible that a legend develops in a couple of decades. Legends take hundreds of years to develop. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is in front of you, in the year 56 AD. That's just 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Historically speaking, legends do not develop in 25 years. John Lennon died in 1980, 27 years ago, further than the time that separates the death of Jesus Christ and the writing of the book of 1 Corinthians. Imagine if someone were to write a book today and say, John Lennon rose from the dead, and, and, and he appeared to Paul and then he appeared to Ringo, and then he (laughs) appeared to George, and then he appeared to 500 hippies at one time. (laughs) And 27 years later, you have that book now, just written now, 27 years later. And, And the book claimed, hey, about 500 of those people that saw John Lennon alive are still alive. All we would have to do is say, somebody please come forward to verify this. Somebody come forward to verify this, and when nobody came forward, when there wasn't 500 people who said, oh yeah, I saw him alive, then that book would not go into circulation. It wouldn't gain any traction. It wouldn't gain any popularity. It would be deemed nonsensical and a fabrication from the beginning, and yet we have the letter of 1 Corinthians just 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus Christ being circulated in that very region and beyond, claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and that there were some 500 brethren who had seen him who were still alive. Clearly, somebody said, where are some of the 500? And after 100, 200, 260, 370, 420, 496, 500 people came forward. They said, okay, this letter's authentic. And then it was circulated. And now we have it 2,000 years later. We would not have 1 Corinthians 2,000 years later if it made a claim that some 500 people were still alive that saw Jesus rise from the dead and they never existed. To say that it's a legend, it simply contradicts the known facts. It makes no sense. These were eyewitness accounts. And so those are the theories that assume that the body of Jesus was still in the grave. They don't fit the facts. Now, the following theories try to account for the grave being empty. Because that's pretty strong evidence. There was this empty grave. The wrong grave one is silly, you know what I mean. And the unknown grave doesn't make sense. And the spiritual one, that holds no weight. And uh, the legend, that doesn't seem to fit. So now here's the theories that try to account for the tomb being empty. The first one is this. And this is very popular. People say that the body of Jesus was stolen by the disciples. Now, if you saw the recent film, uh, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, that's how it starts. It starts with that claim that the disciples stole the body of Jesus out of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where the New Testament said he was laid, and that they then moved the body to this family tomb some two miles away outside of Jerusalem. It starts with the idea that the disciples stole the body. First of all, the New Testament tells us that that was a lie from the beginning. Matthew 27, the religious leaders say to the Roman soldiers, Hey, you can tell your superiors, since you somehow don't know where the body is, that the disciples stole the body. That was a lie from the religious leaders propagated by the Roman soldiers and later circulated through the world and confirmed that it was circulated by extra-biblical sources. But it was a lie to start with, and the film, uh, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, starts with that very lie. Well, let's examine that lie according to the historical facts. Does it hold any weight? Remember, that fact number six was this. The disciples were transformed from doubters, afraid to even identify themselves as having been with Jesus, to them boldly proclaiming His death and resurrection. Are we to believe that the disciples who in the Garden of Gethsemane abandoned Jesus, ran when the soldiers came, left Him alone, fled the scene, AND DIDN'T EVEN SHOW UP FOR THE CROSS, EXCEPT FOR JOHN. AND PETER, WHO THREE TIMES DENIED KNOWING THE LORD, NOT BEFORE THE Sanhedrin, NOT BEFORE ROMAN SOLDIERS, HE DENIED KNOWING THE LORD BEFORE A SERVANT GIRL, THE LOWEST IN THAT SOCIETY. HE, WERE YOU WITH HIM? I WASN'T. AND THE THIRD TIME PETER DENIED THE LORD, WE'RE TOLD IN ONE OF THE GOSPELS, that HE BEGAN TO CURSE AND SWEAR. IT DOESN'T MEAN HE USED FOUL LANGUAGE. It means that he said something to this effect. May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus Christ. Peter was that terrified. Are we to believe that in that three-day time, somehow Peter and the disciples got so brave, had an absolute turn of heart and courage, that they now went and stole the body? Remember, to steal the body, they had to defeat the Roman guard. A Roman guard was made up of four to 16 Roman soldiers. Do a study of history. Roman soldiers at this period in history were the single most well-trained killing machine on the face of the earth. They were killing machines, trained to defend six square feet of ground against multiple oncomers. Killing machines. Are we to believe that the disciples who fled at the Garden of Gethsemane, who denied ever being with Jesus, that didn't even show up for the cross, now they show up and they beat up the Roman soldiers? Listen, the women showed up to the cross. It's more believable that the women beat up the Roman soldiers than it is the disciples. They are brave enough to be at the cross. So maybe the women came, and the women beat up all the soldiers. Nobody with a brain believes that. That, That's not even possible. Beyond that then, the, the, the stone in front of the grave was one and a half to two tons, and it was sealed with the Roman seal. To break that seal without authorization was punishable by death. Are we to believe that the disciples who were so terrified of the Romans that arrested Jesus now came and beat up four to 16 soldiers and just brazenly broke that Roman seal, even though it would mean punishment of death, and stole the body and hid it so well that it is never resurfaced. And then beyond that, that they all corroborated together and said, let's preach that Jesus Christ was risen. Let's write about it. Let's spend the whole rest of our lives preaching about it, even until they kill us, and we'll still keep it secret, keep it safe. Are we to believe that? That these guys who were cowards in the Garden of Gethsemane all now died for a lie because every one of them died a martyr's death because of their belief in a risen Lord. Okay, maybe one, maybe two. But are we to believe that all the rest of them, that never not one of them, at the moment they were being tortured, would have simply said, okay, okay, stop. Oh, stop. We stole the body. Oh, we hid it in this valley behind Jerusalem. It's, you, you could go find it there. We stole the body. It's not true. Stop killing us. James was ran through with a sword. Peter was crucified upside down. His guts would fill his throat and he'd suffocate on him. Don't you think at some point the cheese ball Peter who denied the Lord three times would have said, stop, we stole the body. How are we, people with brains, to believe that the disciples defeated the Roman guard, stole the body, hid it so well it's never resurfaced and that every single one of them gave up their lives and died horrible death for that lie? This simply isn't believable. It simply isn't. Secondly, they say this. Here's another theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Rather, he merely fainted and was revived in the tomb. This is called the swoon theory. It's gained much popularity throughout history. It was first introduced in the first half of the 19th century. Academia has since rejected it, and for good reason. But it resurfaces from time to time in popular culture. The swoon theory. Oh, he fainted on the cross, and then in the cool of the tomb, he was revived. Wait a minute. Let's think about the events surrounding his crucifixion. First of all, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus suffered a condition called hematidrosis, where he sweat drops of blood. It's an actual medical condition that happens because of severe stress. It is when blood oozes through the pores of the skin. Hematidrosis. Hema blood, drosis water, tie ties it all together, I guess. Hematidrosis. <laughs> Jesus suffered this in the Garden of Gethsemane it leaves your skin very raw, okay? After that, Jesus was arrested, and he was beaten. He was bl- beaten? He was beat. He was blindfolded and beat by Roman soldiers, trained killing machines. Have you ever been hit by multiple Roman soldiers when you didn't know from what direction that punch was coming? That is a brutal blow, and they ripped his beard from his face, and they beat him repeatedly, and they beat him with rods, Bamboo rods repeatedly over the head. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. He was beaten so brutally, he was marred beyond recognition. He was disfigured from the beating that he took at the hands of the Roman guards. And then he would have walked from trial to trial that night. He had six trials total in Jerusalem. He would have walked miles throughout the night from trial to trial. No food, no water, no sleep, repeated beatings. Then he would have been scourged where they stripped him naked and they took the cat of nine tails, nine leather strips of bone and metal woven in, and they would whip him from the back of his neck to the back of his knees, breaking the skin, going deeper than the subcutaneous level, down to the muscle and to the bone. And the back of Jesus Christ would have been left quivering ribbons of flesh. And then he was crucified. By the way, on his way to be crucified, he could not physically carry the crossbar. And then he was crucified. Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They merely perfected it as a form of torture. It was the most horrific death you could imagine. Now, when someone was put on the cross, they were put there to die. It was not a temporary thing. And when the Romans got tired of them suffering, they would come along and break the legs of the victims because how the victims died was asphyxiation. They could get a breath in, but they couldn't get a breath out, so they would be poisoned. They would suffocate, so to speak. And what they would do is they'd come along and they would break the legs of the people on the cross. Therefore, they could no longer push themselves up to exhale all the weight being on their diaphragm. You say, well, why didn't they just pull themselves up with their arms? Well, they did for the first few hours, and then their shoulders and elbows dislocated, leaving their arms five to seven inches longer than when they were nailed to the cross. So their last-ditch effort to extend their life was to push themselves up with their legs. The Romans would come and break their legs so they could no longer do, and they would die a quicker death. The Romans broke the legs of each of the criminals on each side of Jesus. They went to go break the legs of Jesus, but they saw that he was dead. The Roman soldier, who was a professional executioner, had to test and certify the death. Roman soldiers, when they failed at any post they were given, their punishment for failing at their post was death. You can be sure that this Roman soldier would make sure Jesus was dead. How did he make sure? He shoved a spear in his side, penetrated the sac surrounding the heart, the pericardium. How do we know? Because water came from the wound. So he stabbed a pier right into his side and into his heart. Water came out. The Roman soldier, and it depended on his life, certified that Jesus Christ was dead, evidenced by the fact that he did not break his legs. And then he was buried in traditional Jewish grave clothes that would have weighed close to 100 pounds by the time all the spices and all the wrappings were put on. Are we to believe that he endured that beating, was wrapped in those grave clothes, and then in the cool of the tomb? Oh, the air-conditioned Jewish tomb. He was revived. And being revived, he somehow removed all the grave clothes from himself, rolled away the two-ton stone, beat up the soldiers, came and appeared to the women. And the women said, oh, he's risen. And to the disciples. And they were so convinced that they gave their lives for it. Are we to believe that? That's ridiculous. It's amazing what people will believe when they reject the truth. There's just no validity to it. It's just unbelievable to think that Thomas will put his fingers in those wounds and say, my Lord and my God. Doesn't make any sense. They were convinced that he had conquered death and so they worshiped him. Third theory is that Jesus was drugged on the cross and resuscitated later. That it was a plot called the Passover plot. There was a whole book written about it, a rather lengthy book in 1965. I have a copy of it here written by a, name, a guy named Hugh Seanfield, The Passover Plot. What he says in this book, and it's been reprinted dozens of times, what he says in this book is that Joseph of Arimathea and an unidentified Jewish co-conspirator poisoned Jesus, drugged him on the cross with a drug that they knew would allow him to be resuscitated, and later on they resuscitated him, nursed him back to health, presented him before the world as the risen Lord, and it was a big scheme from the beginning. That makes no sense. That holds no weight. But wait, people believe this book. This book has been reprinted, as I said, dozens of times. That copy's from 1985. It was originally written in 1965. People buy into this stuff. Number four, they say that the body of Jesus was taken by the authorities. Okay, wait a minute. Does that fit the facts? That's absurd for the following reason. The same authorities in the book of acts commanded the disciples to stop teaching in the name of the risen lord they commanded them to stop preaching a risen jesus christ why because the risen lord and his followers threatened their socio-political religious economic power base and so they commanded them at the threat of their lives to stop preaching the risen lord in jerusalem if they stole the body the authorities as many people say All they would have had to have done to put an end to the preaching is present the body. You stole it. You must have it. Just produce it. Just drag the body of this dead guy named Yeshua through the streets of Jerusalem and Christianity be over before it started. Nobody would believe. Nobody would respond. The authorities wouldn't have any problem at all. It makes no sense to say that they stole the body. If they stole the body, they would have simply presented it, and Christianity would have been dead before it began. But what do we have? We have 300 years later, Rome becoming a Christian nation based on the preaching of a risen Lord. What do we have? We have Peter in Jerusalem preaching a risen Lord and 3,000 Jews getting saved during the first sermon. We have the church growing to well over 10,000 people in the initial weeks of the church based on the fact of the risen Lord. If somebody had just produced the body that the authorities had or found it wherever the disciples hid it, it would have been over. But we have thousands upon thousands of Jews forsaking Saturday, worshiping now on Sunday, no longer sacrificing because Jesus Christ was a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath, standard, and righteousness of God. We have all the transformed lives. We have the disciples giving their lives for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't make any sense. If we were to have a trial and we were to call eyewitnesses, And we said, okay, we want all the witnesses of the people that have seen the risen Lord. There would be at least, according to scripture, 518 people that would come forward. If each of them testified for just six minutes, which would be a very short time on the stand. If each of them testified for just six minutes, that would be over 50 hours of eyewitness testimony. 50 hours of eyewitness testimony. Next, the attorneys would certainly say, okay, well, let's hear from the other side now. Let's hear eyewitnesses who have seen the dead body of Jesus Christ. Anybody? (laughs) Nobody would come forward. The silence of that moment would be deafening. Nobody would come forward. Tom Anderson is a former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association, and he's a co-author of the Basic Advocacy Manual of the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, and here's what he says. Let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false? I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? That somebody would say, listen, I saw the tomb, it was not empty. Look, I was there. Christ did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, I saw his dead body. He finishes and says, the silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection. Nobody in the history of the world has ever said, I saw the body. Nobody. There's only one theory that fits the whole body of evidence, that fits all the facts, and that theory is this, that Jesus Christ had a bodily resurrection from the dead by the power of God. A reasonable person looks at the facts and sees that that is the most reasonable decision, that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Death could not hold him down. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I got the power to lay it down. I got the power to take it up again and take it up again. He did. And so we proclaim this day that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is reasonable, rational, historical, evidential, and defensible. We proclaim this day that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is reasonable, rational, historical, evidential, and defensible. So don't be bullied to think otherwise. Think logically. Think soundly. Investigate and challenge others to investigate. Because Jesus was risen from the dead then our salvation and all the promises that accompany it are yes and amen in him. And we have the sure hope of heaven. And so people, invite your friends to Easter with confidence. I mean confidence. I mean boldness. Hey! You need to come and hear about Jesus. He rose from the dead. Just invite him just like that. I finish with this challenge. Every single hour, 5,417 people enter eternity. That's 75 people every minute. That is 1.25 people every second. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Because Jesus rose from the dead and conquer death. Amen. Let's stand. Lord, we proclaim together that we believe that you are risen. Jesus Christ, you are the risen one. You are high and exalted. No man took your life from you. You had the power to lay it down. You have the power to take it up again. And Lord, we have just scratched the surface of the evidence and we are convinced that you conquered sin and death and the devil and that you rose from the dead. And so Jesus, in the same way now, we are convinced that our salvation is sure, and that on that day you will deliver us into glory. We are convinced that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. We are convinced that they are buried in the deepest sea. We are convinced that we have been washed white as snow by the blood of the lamb. We are convinced that Satan is defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. We are convinced, Jesus, that you are big enough to deal with our lives and our problems, that you can move our mountains because you are the conquering king and the risen Lord and death could not hold you down.